We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. And in the newsroom, Ken Mann. And Jen McQueen. <laughs> I think I'm going to remove my top in protest of those who remove their top in protest. Here goes. No. Here. No, Stop. no, 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 no. Thompson! Put that back on! Bone rock you? What is that? Jeez. Playing the rib cage accordion, that boy. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board uh, playing the Brenda Lee 161 on Rolling Stone's Top 200 Singers of All Time. And still, can't find the Celine. What is this, anti-Canadian? All right, big day in the Hammer tomorrow, by-election for Hamilton Centre. Uh, normally, these things don't get a lot of attention, don't get a lot of uh, uh, coverage, uh, but this one obviously is uh, because of the controversy surrounding one of the candidates. Uh, that being said, tomorrow, if you are eligible, get out and exercise your right to vote. Tomorrow, Thursday, by-election. And the um, the uh, 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 advance polls have been open as well. You know, we're hearing mixed, uh, you know, is it low? Is it Well, it's all always low. It's a by-election. You know, it's like a school trustee. Uh, of course, I'm not diminishing any of these positions whatsoever, but it just doesn't seem to generate the interest, although this one uh, certainly has this time around. All right, what else? Um, uh, Ontario Court uh, denies uh, Della Millard a request for an appeal on the sentencing in his father's murder. Uh, you might remember that was initially deemed suicide and then murder charges and in, in a conviction for Dylan Millard on that. He was appealing and keeps delaying the, the, the sentencing of that or uh, the appeal for the sentencing and the judge said no more of that. Uh, this is going ahead Friday. Oddly enough, the same week that they will be in court, both Millard and Smitch, uh, talking about getting a reduced sentence, and it looks like this will happen because it has already happened in a uh, other case uh, after a decision from the Supreme Court regarding concurrent and consecutive sentences, meaning can you serve your 25 years all at once, or depending upon, you know, if you've had three victims, that's 75 years. And with that becomes the eligible eligibility for parole, um, which obviously brings the families back into it, and it's just, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a brutal it's a brutal part of our law that i'm not sure why we can't manage to get a hold of all right um so anyway um that's all going on this week and of course we'll keep you updated as we hear more on uh the trial for the sentence uh, reduction the other big story the fallout from uh, russia knocking that u.s drone out of international waters and you know you think you'd be a drone something that your kid might use or what have you but no these are 32 million you can strap a seat on these things and ride them they're so big you can probably put the family of five in there uh anyway um you know we're seeing and learning more and more about this about russian jets trying to dump fuel on it and and get it to stall out and such and then eventually i guess uh, apparently clipping it with a wing and down she goes now there uh well rather than me talk uh, about it let's listen to uh, associated press sagar magani on what he has to say about this collision 
U.S. forces brought down the drone after saying a Russian jet hit and damaged the MQ-9's propeller. Russia does not have the drone. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder yesterday. This morning, a Russian security official says Moscow will look for the drone's debris. Here in Washington, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told CNN the drone has not been recovered and the U.S. already took steps to minimize efforts by other nations to exploit the drone's content. The incident has deepened the diplomatic rift. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says relations with Washington are deplorable at their lowest point at the Pentagon. A troubling episode yesterday. Defense Chief Lloyd Austin says it continued a pattern of unsafe Russian actions. Sagar Magani, Washington. So, um, yeah, that, there you have it. So whether it's China or Russia, it, it, it seems that uh, lots of horn locking is going on in regard to this uh, drone uh, coming down in international waters. Uh, obviously, now Russia going looking for it to see what they can find. Uh, and American officials saying, no, we can clear that sort of stuff off. But either way, uh, the drone is down and tensions are high between Russia and uh, the United States. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And... Uh, uh, as well, uh, we were talking about this yesterday. 72% of Canadians want a public inquiry into China election interference, including 71%, even when you divide it down to parties with the Liberals, uh, wanting to see some sort of uh, public inquiry uh, going on. Uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say. He's constantly being asked about this. It's about making sure that experts are stepping up uh, to reinforce the integrity of our democratic processes. Uh, we are working uh, to appoint that special rapporteur, that special independent expert uh, in the coming uh, days or week. We're working extremely quickly on that. You know, do you want to be the rapporteur? Who would like that job? Well, I guess you'd like it because it comes with a, it probably comes with a big fat paycheck. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and how do you find one that, uh, is going to keep everybody happy? I guess that's out of the question, but, uh, apparently soon, sooner rather than, rather than later, like within a week, they're saying that they're going to name the official rapporteur. Sounds a bit like a, a Disney cartoon. Sounds a bit like, uh, remember the movie with, <laughs> with the mice, the movie with the mice, uh, cooking, the cooking mouse. Remember that? Let's see, Mickey top that. Ratatouille. It's a rapporteur. It's a ratatouille. It's a rapporteur. It's a ratatouille. It's a rapporteur. The whole thing seems like one giant cartoon, doesn't it? All right. Uh, that's all coming up on the show. Uh, what else we got? Oh, and this is pretty funny. Buffalo Wild Wings in the States is getting sued for false advertising um, because apparently their boneless chicken wings aren't really chicken wings. You got a kid? Have you ever seen those little chicken things? Like, really? Uh, to which Buffalo Wild Wings replied, uh, there are also no buffalo in our wild wings. Uh, where do you go with a story like that? Well, you bring in Alyssa Freeman, and we'll do that coming up moments from now. All right. Uh, you know, many people um, uh, bring things like this up, but I, I said this to my son this morning. And he goes, you know what? It's not a bad point, Dad. Uh, a Chicago man is suing Buffalo Wild Wings for false advertising and deceptive business practices, alleging that uh, he was duped into buying boneless wings when, in fact, they were not actually 
boneless wings. They're uh, uh, chicken forced together, pressed together to make it look like a wing. You got a kid, they're called chicken nuggets, chicken pieces, chicken bites, chicken this, chicken that, chicken whatever. Uh, anyway, so uh, it was interesting because uh, this, of course, uh, blew up on social media. And Buffalo Wild Wings came back with a, a cute rebuttal saying that, you know, we'd also like to announce that we don't have any buffalo in our wild wings as well. I don't know. Where do you go with this? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Thank you for the time, Alyssa. Hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you, Scott. I always love to talk about food. So <laughs> why not, right? Uh, and, you know, we're uh, sort of halfway between lunch and dinner, so this might make people uh, hungry anyway. So Linner. your thoughts is it, it, it? Yeah. <laughs> there you there you go. Good for you. Uh, so is, 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 does a wing have to be a wing to be a wing? Uh, and you know, they're Buffalo wild wings and clearly Buffalo don't have wings. So what the hell is going on here? You know, it's interesting. When you get wings, you expect there to be a bone, right? So that's how you get sure. it off the wing. So obviously, otherwise a-, a bird, otherwise a bird would not be able to fly. Well, there's that. So if you're looking at things that are, you call them wings and there's, a, and they really are nuggets. You know, I guess the question is, gosh, um, you know, who really cares? Well, obviously, some guy sitting in Chicago who didn't like his delivery order certainly cares. But I think it speaks to a larger issue, believe it or not. And I've never had the product. And I, I think that from what I hear, it's, it's a good product. But, you know, if you are going to call something a wing, then it should be a wing. Either it's not a wing, it's a nugget or yeah. a strip. And maybe sometimes you call it wings because you feel that people identify with wings more often. Oh, it's a football game. Let's have wings. We're getting together. Let's have wings. Um, right. You know, I don't think you go and get, you know, let's have nuggets. So I guess from a marketing <laughs> perspective, they wanted, they wanted to call it wings. But, you know, how do you get around that? Well, you can put um, quotation marks around wings. You know, we can go our own handcrafted um wing-like pieces i mean i'm sure they went through all of this scott and i think that what they did in the room was say you know what let's call it wings to heck with it and that's what we're going to do until now so you know when somebody gives you a lawsuit perhaps your first knee-jerk reaction is hmm you know let's just make light of it which is what they did in their tweet you know our right. wings our buffalo wings are zero percent buffalo well okay <laughs> that's funny but it doesn't really address the issue. So you can go the cheeky way, thinking that this is, you know, uh, we're, that we feel this is so dismissive when we really don't care. Or you can actually issue a statement and say, you know, this is a wing-like product. It looks like a wing. It tastes like a wing. It's, you know, made from a combination of white meat and dark meat. And our customers absolutely love it. So does that mean they have to go as far as changing the name of it? No, but I think they probably could have provided a a better uh, explanation as to what the product is. It's delicious. We sell more of this product than anything else. You know, um, we get rave reviews and, um, you know, we we hope that this gentleman um, would reconsider and, you know, he can order anything else off the menu for an entire year. I mean, I don't know. But I, I think that you got to be careful when you take a cheeky response, Scott. And uh, that, I think you also have to be careful when the New York Times starts reporting on this, whether it's a slow news day or not. Uh, that being said, is this an opportunity for the wing company to take this? I mean, obviously, they're booting it a little higher into the air by by saying we don't have any buffalo in the wings as well. So are they going to get another kick at this to keep it in the air? And, and isn't that what they should do as long as they can? 
I think that they're trying to get to the bottom of the lawsuit. And even the articles I read about this are not sure what prompted this gentleman to actually initiate a class action lawsuit. I mean, my gosh, I mean, you know, how much time do you have during the day, you know, to actually initiate a, a class action lawsuit around, you know, wings, not wings. So I think that they're looking at the legal process to see just how serious this all is and whether this is just um, 15 minutes of fame for this gentleman. But I think that, you know, from a practical perspective, because you never know which way these things go, Scott, I think they have to talk to their PR folks and their comms people. And if they have a crisis communications firm, they're going to say, okay, listen, you know what? We, we need to, we need to cut this off at the knees or at the wing. And um, how do we do that in an appropriate way that isn't cheeky, but does show that we take our product seriously. And we see stuff like this all the time. Um, we, you know, there's the big issue about is milk really milk? How can you have milk if it doesn't come from, you know, you know I mean, when is milk milk? I mean, the same sort of debate goes on. I want to ask you another thing too about, uh, something last week with Tim Hortons and the roll up the win, uh, roll up the rim to win. And now it's obviously gone digital and some customers got a message saying they'd won 10 grand, got all, all excited only to get an email later saying, nope, sorry, uh, tech problem. And that's it. That's all. Here's your $50 gift card, what should they do? You know, that's interesting. My husband talked to me about that and I went, it was a mistake. What are they going to do? Hand out 10 grand? And I think that's what they thought. They said, okay, well, here's 50 bucks. And I think that the, you know, when you look at these things, you tend to look at the news cycle burn on it. And it went for about 24 hours. I wouldn't say it went for about maybe 36, 48 hours. And I really haven't heard anything about it since. So, you know, is that gentleman going to file a class action lawsuit and say, I, you know, you told me I want to eat $10,000 and then suddenly I'm not. So now what? I think that what they try to do is mitigate the issue and say, you know, we're sorry, we apologize. This is not, this is not something, you know, this was a technical um, glitch and, uh, you know, here, here we're giving you a, a $50 gift certificate. So I think that that was their route of saying, you know what? Let's try and get in and out of this problem really quickly. It might get some press. It might see one night's worth of coverage. And then let's just see if we can end it like this. And I think that they have ended it like that, Scott. I mean, I haven't heard anything else. All right, so let me make this pitch to you, Alyssa, as a young kid who's got a great idea for a campaign, and I think there was more than one. I think there was a few, but I don't know how many. I don't think it was a tremendous amount. But either way, an ad campaign costs money. So why not pay all of these people their ten grand, get the publicity out of it, use a whole messaging campaign to it about how great you are, because Hortons has been taking a you know a kick to the shins for a long time, and, and really make a feel-good out of this, just like they blow this on any other ad campaign why not just give it to the people and then make a big deal about it you know what sometimes when people do cost benefit analyses scott they think first of all we don't know how many of these these went out all i know was one gentleman that's the only person i've seen on tv about this so if you're thinking that about you know 100 of them went out well you can do the math on what that's going to cost you but you know i wonder is there I don't know about the rules and regulations of gaming, and I don't know if gaming got involved in here because there is a whole auspices that you have to go through and hoops you have to jump through whenever you even just have a raffle. You know, gaming is tightly, tightly controlled. So if there is nothing within the the gaming policy that says, okay, if it was a technical glitch, you still have to pay, they're probably going by the letter of the law on this. But you know, you're right. I mean, depending on 
how much this was and how much it totals. You know, oops, we made a mistake. But, you know, listen, you're a loyal customer. We're going to give you 10 grand. I think that's, you know, there's new owners there. At, um, well, they're not that new, but they've only been there for, about, I don't know, three to five years now, Scott. And it's all about the bottom line for these guys. So mm-hmm. this is a very different company. This is not the Tim Hortons that you and I grew up with. This is one that's owned by a larger parent company. And I think that the first thing they're going to say is, forget it. We're not going to pay. I don't care about the goodwill. Take 50 bucks or nothing. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert. And we didn't even touch on politics. Look at that. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. <laughs> I was ready, Bill Scott. I, was I know. Ready. <laughs> Me too, but we're just out of time. All right. Thanks so much. We'll chat again. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly don't need to tell everybody how hard uh, the last three years of the global pandemic have been on uh, everybody. Uh, really, I don't think there's anybody, any business, any group that hasn't been touched by this in in some way. Uh, the good news is we're slowly coming out. Of, we're out of the pandemic. Uh, the bad news is we're in financial uh, financial situation where we're seeing increased inflation, Um the cost, the cost of living, the, the, the just affordability in general has uh, been making it very, very difficult. So after uh, we came out of being locked down for so long, everybody wanted to run out and, and support business. And then all of a sudden costs started going through the roof. So small business groups have been asking the federal government to further extend the deadline for repaying the Canadian emergency business account loan when the budget is tabled later on this month. Uh, a few, uh, as few of the loans have been paid back, Ottawa announced the creation of the CEBA program in April of 2020 and sent more than $49 billion to 900,000 businesses. Um, and then that was extended uh, another 12 months after its deadline of December 31st, 2022. So uh, again, there's many small businesses that are still feeling the pinch with all of this as uh, we are entering whatever the new world is. Let's bring in Jasmine Gannett, a Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of independent business and is with us now. Jasmine, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. All right. So we certainly know, Jasmine, how difficult this has been for the last three years for businesses, small businesses, uh, specifically those in the in the hospitality industry, but pretty much everywhere, uh, as obviously we exit the pi- uh, pandemic, but then costs start to go up and, and prices start to increase. Where is small business now at this point in all of this mayhem that we've been through for the last three and a half years? Is it coming back or are they, are they still feeling the pressure? Uh, Many businesses are still feeling the pressure. Um, Small businesses are facing higher costs across the board. Um, 58% of small businesses across Canada are dealing with uh, pandemic-related debt. Uh, It's close to 1 million businesses that uh, had to take on the SIBA loan. Uh, just to survive, uh, you know, the two years of lockdown and business uh, restrictions. So many businesses had no choice but to uh, take a huge amount of debt just to get through the pandemic. And uh, many uh, businesses, many small businesses are still struggling to repay that loan. Uh, and uh, that uh, higher cost across the board and the high level of debt Uh, is putting many small businesses, uh, I would say, in a precarious uh, financial uh, situation. Is it certain industries? uh, Are others doing better than others, or is it across the board? 
Yeah, no, it's it's obviously certain certain sector are uh, doing uh, better than others. So those the sectors that were hardest hit by the pandemic are obviously the one that continue to uh, have difficulty uh, as we speak. For example, uh, the tourism sector, um, hospitality. You know those uh, restaurants, uh, um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, businesses that rely on foot traffic. Uh, you know the 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 hair salon, the uh, the dry cleaners, uh, uh, the business mm-hmm. like the gym, for example. Uh, those businesses that rely on clients coming in, uh, buying things, doing stuff. Those businesses. Uh, are still uh, facing uh, a, a difficult, are still in a difficult position. Um, just for example, just as an example, if you remember the businesses in the tourism sectors, uh, well, they were among the first to close and mm-hmm. amongst the last to reopen. And so those type of businesses uh, have a huge amount of debt and many of them took on the Canadian uh, emergency business account, the CBA loan, which was a loan of $40,000 or $60,000 with a portion of it being forgivable. Those businesses really needed that loan and uh, they still need more time to repay it because they are still struggling. Are you hoping or do you anticipate there'll be some sort of help in the next budget? As you said, as we said, it's coming down later this month. Uh, Are you expecting any relief there? We need relief. Uh, Budget is on March 28th. We've been uh, asking governments to increase the forgivable portion of the CBA loan. We have asked government to extend the repayment deadline of the CBA loan for at least uh, another year. Um, it, it's really important that businesses have more time to uh, repay that loan. Uh, only 13% of small businesses have been able to fully repay their CBA loan. So clearly businesses need uh, more time and it would be a good public policy to uh, announce uh, so that uh, businesses have more time to repay and uh, really make sure that those small businesses uh, can get back on their two feet uh, and then grow back and thrive as uh, they were prior to the pandemic. Any time frame, Jasmine? You know what, like a year, two years? What, what, what sort of time frame are we looking at? At least, at least uh, uh, one additional year. So the deadline to repay the CBA loan uh, right now is this year, as of uh, December thirty uh, first. Uh, businesses have to repay uh, the loan; otherwise, uh, uh, they lose the forgivable portion. So we're asking government at least for another year. Uh, maybe even two uh, to make sure that uh, most businesses uh, can repay that loan. And that way, government will get its money back, which uh, I think uh, we all think is uh, important too. Uh, and businesses will be able to uh, have access to the most uh, uh, important aspect of this loan, which was the forgivable portion. So allowing more time for businesses to repay is a win-win uh, policy, both for businesses and government. 
Uh, yeah, and it's certainly better than them going out of business as well. Uh, what about uh, employee retention, Jasmine? We certainly hear, I mean, it's like you look everywhere. It's we're looking, we're hiring. Um, use help wanted ads uh, everywhere, it seems. How has it been trying to retain biz, uh, employees for small biz? Uh, it's very difficult. The I would say um, shortages of labor is uh, a top concern for a small business owner across Canada. Uh, in Ontario only, it's uh, uh, almost uh, three quarters of small business owner that say they are affected uh, by labor shortages, meaning that they they either don't have all the staff they need to uh, uh, run their daily operation, m- m- maybe they don't they have all the staff for their daily operation, but they could expand, but they cannot because they don't have all the staff. Uh, that uh, they, they they would need, maybe they have all the staff that they need, but as a, as a but at but at a significant uh, higher cost. So the situation is quite difficult. Uh, it's uh, not easy to recruit. Uh, we have seen this uh, phenomenon uh, lately uh, that is called uh, ghosting, where. Uh, uh, potential candidate just don't show up at their mm. interview without um, mentioning that they would not show up. Some people even accepting to work at a small firm, but not showing up on their first day. So wow. shortage of labor is really, really, really uh, 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 an issue for all businesses uh, in all sector of the economy. Um, and it's it, hopefully, you know, we will uh, see in the upcoming federal budget, but also it's a it's a provincial matter as well as a federal matter, but solution to help businesses deal with that shortage of, uh, of labor. Jasmine Kinnett with us, Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, still struggling small businesses and want some extra time to repay the CEBA loans. Jasmine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much for having us and have a great rest of the day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Did you ever wonder when you see people driving around with those covers over their license plates? Some are perfectly clear, and some, man, you can't see in. (laughs) No, not the windows, the license plate cover. Uh, And you have to wonder when it comes to things like red light cameras or toll highways, that sort of thing. Um, Are they illegal? Apparently they are, but yet you can still buy them. Is this like a tinted window? It depends on how dark or so it is. Let's bring in Lorraine Sommerfeld, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator and is with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, so far, so good. So, you know, I've always wondered about this because you see some people that have them. I, I don't need a license plate cover because all of my numbers have fallen off my license plate. <laughs> and I and I have I have had this under two different uh, Ontario governments, so I'm not blaming one because uh, yeah. last time I got a car, I, I, I changed the plates because they were falling off the last one, and now they're falling off these ones as well for like the last 10 or 20 years. That's another story. Are these things legal or not? Um, they're legal to sell, but you're not allowed to have anything on your plate, which technically even means that little outline that the dealers put on them. Technically, right. I went over yeah. this with a cop once, but get this, you, 
up until at least a few years ago, you could buy those covers at Service Ontario. They used to sell them there and they were illegal. <laughs> so does it matter like a tinted yeah. window, how dark it is, whether it's clear, whether it's because there's obviously different uh, levels of tint. Well, the problem is that light reflects off even clear plastic. So that's oh, not right. even that's not even a thing, whether it's tinted or not. And you're peeling plates. They'll replace them for free. I just got mine replaced. They were 20 years old. So go in and replace them. All right. That's I'll get that done do. for sure. So, uh, I, but I, I think most people like you got fed up with the government's, you know, having faulty plates and they're trying to protect them. Most people went into this trying to protect their plates, not mm. try to deceive, you know, the 407 cameras. Cause man, that's a lot of effort for, you know, not much, but I still remember people spray, you know, spray on snow, people put in the windows at Christmas. I know people, <laughs> they, they used to spray their plates with You're that. Kidding I've seen me. everything. Oh, yeah, I've seen everything. Really? <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, you know, since we're on the plates, let's get to that. Like, what is it that for like 20 years our plates have sucked? And then, of course, you know, the government tried to bring in the blue ones, and we know where that <laughs> went. And, and yeah. but again, and, you know, many were questioning, like, how the hell does it get to that point before somebody realizes there's a problem and obviously there aren't politicians down there making license plates or are the criminals anymore this is a private enterprise why can yeah. we not get a handle on making a damn license plate over the last 25 years i think what i've learned over the last 15 or 20 years is the components went from steel some of the, like they changed the steel the right. paint the paint used, used to be raised lettering and then painted, and then they moved to decals, and then they moved to stickers, and then there was a problem with a batch of paint. But apparently it was a bad batch for like eight years, so I'm not really buying that. That was, I don't know which government that was, but it was garbage. All I know is when they started peeling, if a cop can't read your plate, you can get ticketed. Yeah. And and you're going, well, I didn't make the plate. Like, why is this? You know? And they said you had to spend $59 to replace them. Well, like I said, mine were 20 years old and all peeling. I went in about six months ago. They just handed me another set. I'm not special. They don't know who I am. So if yeah. your plates are peeling, replace them. You don't need to be pulled over for that reason. It's just not worth it. Good point. Uh, this never happened then when they were just made in prisons. Should we just go back? It was better. I, I, you know what? Got, <laughs> At least got we got some craft. At least we got some yeah. craftsmanship. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, man. That's mean. But, but for people, don't put stuff over your plates. Um, we've got police now who can, you know, flash your plate and know if your insurance is up to date, if you've renewed it with that ridiculous renewal program you don't have to pay for. You're already in enough hot water just doing nothing. So don't put stuff over your plates. If you're trying to protect them, go get good ones and just let them do their plate job. But so that brings up an, another question, Lorraine, because we know that uh, police are now using that surveillance stuff where, you know, the the, ca the camera just hits your plate and goes off. Does, do, do those yeah. things obstruct that as well? Um, that I don't know, because that's they've had that. They've been using that for years. I know they yeah. introduced it like it was new, but they know instantly if you yeah. if you don't have insurance because they can charge you $10,000 and they love laying that charge. But there's a lot of things that are up to an officer's judgment. And that's one of them. Tinting that you brought up is another one. Another one is something mysteriously called the flow of traffic. Try it, get an officer to tell you what that means. It's not in the HTA. Nobody will tell you what the flow of traffic means. So if you're speeding along with everybody else, why are they going to pick you out? So there's a lot that's left up to an officer's judgment. 
what you think of that? Well, we'll find out when you get pulled over and you're angry about it. So. All right. Uh, and the plate covers are a no-no. There you go. Just get new plates. Uh, and I'm yeah. going to do that. Lorraine Summerfelt with his columnist with driving.ca, the Hamilton Spectator. Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. See you, Scott. All right. We certainly know about the situation between a U.S. drone and a Russian jet, fighter jet, in which we're hearing that uh, the fighter jet actually tried to dump fuel on it, and then something happened, and they clipped, and down goes the drone. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So do we know exactly what happened? Did these two aircraft actually touch? Well, according to the U.S. military and the State Department, that there was contact uh, between uh, the Russian jets and this this reconnaissance drone that was in the region. Uh, but what we're hearing, at least from the State Department, is that they don't believe that this was something nefarious. They say that while the interception was nefarious, this is something that has happened repeatedly uh, over the years over the Black Sea, that it was not likely done on purpose that these jets came into contact with um, with the drone. Now, that said, the Russians are saying that they didn't touch the drone at all and that it crashed on its own because it lost altitude. You know, these are two countries that are giving two different stories on this. But at the end of the day, neither of them are saying that they were purposely trying to go after uh, and and get into some kind of conflict with each other. OK, the layman may understand, lay pe- a person may understand that, you know, uh, they can try to buzz each other or whatever and then get too close and an accident happens. But what about the whole fuel issue of it? Dump the jet dumping fuel on this thing, trying to inter- trying to bring it down or obviously uh, interfere with the propeller? I mean, I think it falls into the 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 words that were being spoken, not just by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but by the Pentagon and by the National Security Council in that Russia was operating these planes in an unprofessional, a dangerous and aggressive manner. But again, they are not going so far as to say that anything was done intentionally to try and damage this drone. And words obviously are incredibly important here, Scott, because uh, Vladimir Putin has been incredibly cautious to ensure that he does not draw NATO into this war in Ukraine and doing something even accidental to something of a NATO ally could escalate this conflict even more. Moscow clearly doesn't want that. The United States and NATO want to avoid that. So what you are hearing, at least when it comes to the language being spoken in that these were dangerous and unprofessional moves, you are not seeing anybody say that this was a targeted attempt to go after the United States. So these drones used for what and are they armed? Well, we I mean, sometimes they are armed. We don't know if this one was the Pentagon wasn't uh, forthcoming with details on that. They are in the area to uh, their spy drones, uh, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, But they are not new to this area. They have flown over the Black Sea since uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Uh, They are a part of a series of NATO surveillance flights that fly in the area and quite realistically fly uh, in and around the world. Uh, Russia says that they were approaching too close to sovereign borders. Uh, the United States disagrees with that, but ultimately this has led to uh, heightened tensions throughout the region, but you are likely not going to see drones taken away from the area. In fact, you may see an increase in NATO aircraft starting to patrol the Black Sea. I don't know a lot about uh, jet fighter aircraft, Reggie, but if I was up in one, I don't think I want to be banging into anybody or anything with it, whether it's a weather balloon or a drone. How dangerous? Like this, could this have ended up in the jet crashing? 
Absolutely, it could have. Uh, you know, these these fighter pilots are obviously trained to carry out these kinds of maneuvers, uh, and and they very clearly um, believe to have known what they were doing. Uh, but this could have led to some other kind of catastrophic event, either the the jets crashing or this drone, you know, potentially going out of control. If it was armed, we don't know what would have happened. It's now under four thousand feet of water. Moscow says that it's going to try to retrieve that. The United States is trying to push them back from doing that, but they themselves are getting pushed back because they collected and retrieved the Chinese spy balloon over objections from China. You now have Russia trying to obtain a U.S. spy drone over the objections of the U.S. America says that it's been completely destroyed and probably won't be salvageable. How does this uh, fare for future drone flights in this area? As you said, they're they're looking at what's going on through Ukraine and such. Uh, how how does this change procedure moving forward? Because obviously, the, this they're going to come in close proximity again. Sure, and and I don't think the United States nor NATO is going to back away from surveilling. Um, this area, this is a volatile region uh, in the world right now, which is a part of an active war. And the United States has interests in the region. And that's what the point of some of these drones are, is to collect information and intelligence. I don't think you'll see the United States actively putting these drones over top of um, you know, a sovereign territory, much like you don't often see Russian or Chinese drones often flying over someone else's sovereign territory. So again, it will likely lead to an increase in surveillance from the West to ensure that things are going okay. But I don't think that you're going to see this spark to some critical incident, uh, or at least critical, you know, uh, 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 situation where drones are taken out by the United States and the area is completely patrolled by Russia. I think that this is going to continue as is, and this is going to simply be left as something accidental that occurred over international waters. Boy, and if that's all it is, Reggie, it shows you how these sorts of accidents can happen and how you could end up with a bigger one. Did the did the U.S. have contact with this drone while all this was going on? Were they able to visualize any of this? Look, they, they, they do have video of it, and uh, declassification is underway, and the public will likely get some kind of idea as to what was going on. Obviously, these drones are unmanned, but somebody is obviously on the other end paying attention to this. So we will get a better idea in the days or weeks to come to exactly what happened. But again, because they're spy-based, uh, because they may have equipment on them that is considered sensitive – the Pentagon is obviously being very cagey with the information that they're putting out there. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Watch Global tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Former Governor General David Johnson has been announced the rapporteur that will um, uh, look into uh, whether an inquiry is needed, a committee to study whether another committee is needed into uh, Chinese election interference. David Johnson, uh, former governor general, is the rapporteur. I, I was voting for Avril, Avril Levine. I thought the way Avril Levine handled that um, um, stripper or a pro- <laughs> naked protester, streaker, whatever you want to call, I, I think she would have been perfect for the job, and that's just my personal opinion. All right, we were talking about... Uh, the downing of a U.S. drone by a Russian jet over international waters. Um, Russia says it was an, it is going to attempt to retrieve the jet from waters. Uh, we now, it appears, uh, from what we're just hearing from Reggie Giacchini yesterday, that uh, nobody thinks this is necessarily in, uh, intentional, but certainly was incredibly uh, negligent in, in the sense that everybody could have been brought down. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald-Laurie Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Indeed. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts on this, Christian? Many are saying or some are saying that uh, that this necessarily wasn't intentional, but just negligent, getting too close, buzzing too close. And this is what happens when these things uh, uh, occur. Uh, your thoughts on all of this and, and how it, it transpired? Well, that's absolutely ridiculous by people who don't actually understand. Just look at, pull up, Google a picture of the Reaper and look at how it's designed. The propeller is at the back. You would need to fly so close to that plane, uh, to, to, to that drone. Um, this could not have been accidental. This was quite deliberate. It was very intentional, um, by the Russians. And it is typical Russian maneuvering of engaging in very unsafe ways to signal to the West how displeased they are. And it's not really clear to anybody why they did this. I mean, okay, so the Reapers are a reasonably expensive tool, but there's lots of them around. So just taking out one of them is not going to reduce the surveillance capacity that the United States has in the uh, in the region. So this is just, I think, par for the course in terms of Russian aggression um, and uh, engaging in, uh, in in maneuvers that are contrary to international convention, contrary to international law, uh, simply because they can. How can you say it's uh, not intentional when they're dumping fuel on it? I mean, is that sort of not of a, give, a, a, a giveaway there that something nefarious is going on here? Well, I would have to think that would be a, that would have to be a tip off for anybody. Um, and it also meant that uh, I think the, they were experimenting probably with sort of how the Reaper would react to different types of maneuvers, how long you could keep it flying. So the Russians are probably experimenting with if they want to interfere with the Reaper. Um, and they're probably frustrated because they haven't been able to use uh, electronic warfare measures to try to interfere with the drone. So they're now trying to use kinetic, kinetic measures. Uh, so I think this was basic experimentation on their part. But of course, it's also very dangerous for the pilots who are engaging in these maneuvers for the Russian pilots. Uh, so whichever commanding officer is in charge is uh, clearly not a particularly responsible person on the Russian side. But again, that shouldn't come to anybody's surprise, given the behavior we've seen from the Russians, especially over the last year. Yeah, you, you don't think you want to play bumper cars in a, in a fighter jet, that's for sure. Um, what about being armed? Are these drones armed? Because even knocking them around, I mean, couldn't they blow up? Uh, was this one armed? Do we know? Uh, well, this would likely not be uh, uh, not be armed, given that this would have likely been uh, on a, strictly on a surveillance mission. And there's really, I mean, the Russians are making so a big deal about they're going to try to retrieve it. But the reality is it's going to be at considerable depth, so it's going to take a lot of effort. And there's nothing to get from the drone, because the way the drones are built, once you bring it down, uh, it self-destructs pretty much all of the material that's useful. And the drones don't keep any material on the drone itself. So you're not able to glean any intelligence, even if you can retrieve the actual uh, drone per se. So the, the I think this was mainly for show, um, to show displeasure to the Americans and probably for some domestic consumption, because this is probably going to make the evening news in Russia to show uh, how terrific Russian pilots are at violating international law. Can these drones be better equipped to protect themselves? Yeah, probably. You could use electronic warfare measures to try to, for instance, interfere with the jets that are trying to interfere with the drone. Um, but uh, that's, um, 
you know, how to what extent do you want to escalate? You know, if the right. Russians are dead set to bring down a drone that, you know, yes, it's going to cost $10 million to replace it. But, uh, you know, are you really going to escalate over something like that? Um, uh, this is probably... You know, not not the way you want to play your hand in terms of what capabilities you have to interfere with Russian jets. You know, so you're you're ruling out that this was an accident. It was an intentional thing. That being said, I mean, is this kind of the is is this how you want to stoke the fire when we are where we are in in things, uh, world events, and and certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So yes and no. It's really interesting because one of the key differences with Russia compared to China is we actually have decades long standing deconfliction mechanisms with Russia in airspace and the Russian Air Force. Uh, so even though these are very dangerous maneuvers, um, we have mechanisms to uh, then try to sort out any sort of uh, differences in terms of, for instance, whether this was intentional or not. Uh, so the misunderstanding between Russia and the US in these types of maneuvers is actually much lower than it is with China. So if this was happening with China, mm. I would be much more concerned uh, than, uh, than with, uh, with Russia, in part because we have decades of experience in dealing with the Russians. And I mean, even though this made the news, I mean, you have to understand that uh, the Russians engage in this type of maneuver on a daily basis, whether it's against drones, whether it's against our fighter jets. Uh, whether it's in, trying to incur into other airspace as we had over Estonia. Um, so while this made the news, uh, this is the sort of uh, effort that uh, uh, NATO, the United States and allies have to put up with every single day. This sort of unsafe flying by Russian pilots is something we see every single day. Uh, so this is quite purposely to provoke. Would there be video of this incident? Would we know exactly what has happened? Uh, in the, seeing a jet tag it, if that's the case, or dumping fuel on it? Would there be video of this? Oh, there'd likely be video, uh, both from the drone itself, as well as quite likely from other surveillance mechanisms that would have been in the neighborhood. But what we would have also is very distinct radar signatures about exactly who was flying where and who was doing what. Uh, so there's no, uh, there's no doubt, um, for instance, in uh, neither NATO headquarters nor U.S. headquarters exactly what transpired here. Uh, over the Black Sea because we have fantastic radar coverage uh, on the ground, in the air, and on sea. Um, so uh, we can it, it'll be very easy to reconstruct what exactly the Russians did. Where does this go from here, Christian? Does this now accelerate? It seems like people are trying to calm this down. Um, again, some saying intentional, some saying it's not. Uh, is this something we're going to see continuing to happen? Uh, yeah, as I say, like this is powerful. The course it happens every single day. Russian pilots kind of engage in these types of maneuvers every single day. They provoke us, whether it's in the Arctic, whether it's over NATO airspace, whether it's over international airspace, such as in the Black Sea. Um, and uh, it's something that, unfortunately, a reality that uh, that we need to be prepared for. And uh, of course, the fact that in Canada we had great difficulty even to muster uh, the capabilities to try to take down uh, relatively slow, slow-moving balloons clearly sent by a malicious state actor, um, you know, doesn't give me a lot of confidence that we actually have the equipment that we need today to engage uh, with the sort of maneuvers that, for instance, Russia is engaged in. And so this needs to be another wake-up call that uh, the government of Canada needs to make sure we have um, the capabilities that can engage uh, with a hostile actor that is clearly bent on engaging in very dangerous maneuvers um, uh, to uh, provoke us. 
We know with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the NATO situation where, uh, obviously, if they supply uh, jets, firepower, that triggers NATO. What happens with drones, Christian? Because here's two, an American and a Russian craft, basically touch. Uh, is a drone considered a jet? Is it because it's unmanned? It's not. How does that accelerate or decelerate things? Yeah, that's a very good question, because, of course, you would get a different reaction if the Russians were trying to bring down uh, a U.S. surveillance or fighter jet. So think about the Russians, for instance, trying to bring down an AWACS plane uh, that might be flying over the neighborhood. And, of course, we had that sort of incidents uh, over the South China Sea. You might remember some years ago where China brought down intentionally um, a U.S. Uh, surveillance plane, um, mm. and uh, and that plane subsequently had to make an emergency landing. Um, yeah. On uh, on on uh, on Chinese uh, on a Chinese airstrip, so uh, um, I think uh, you can probably push the matter further when it comes to drones and when it comes to manned planes. Uh, once, especially Mar- like American pilots' lives are at stake, uh, that would be another way to escalate. But as I say, the close flybys are so. Uh, we get this on a regular basis, not just in the airspace, but also, for instance, in the maritime space, and in particular in the Black Sea. Um, and I think it also shows to some extent that uh, the Russians are probably hard-pressed on a number of fronts. So when you're engaging in this sort of, uh, you know, if you're, um, you, you can, um, you'll, you'll behave professionally if you have confidence in your ability to have a handle on the things that are going on. You, bega- you engage in this sort of behavior when you feel you're losing mm-hmm. control uh, and I think the Russians are feeling that they're losing control uh, over the uh, over the Black Sea. Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a lovely afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, It has been announced. We were just talking about it. I wonder who the special new rapporteur is going to be. Uh, Ratatouille. Special rapporteur. It sounds like a Disney character, doesn't it? Something in a Disney cartoon with mice that cook. One's a chef. Um, a special rapporteur, the special rapporteur, has been named. It is former Governor General David Johnson. I think we should have gone with Avril Lavigne. I think she took care of that stripper, um, streaker, protester, whatever she was. I thought she's, she held her ground well. I, I think she'd, she'd have the, you know, to do it. But no, it looks like it's uh, David Johnson, former Governor General. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, I should have bet on that because I've been saying that for a week. Not because I'm brilliant, because I'm far from it, but I thought if the Prime Minister was looking for somebody who uh, fit the qualifications he was seeking above the fray and regarded by I know people in different political parties, and David Johnson is your person. If you recall, before he became governor general, he did some special report for Harper on a rather controversial issue, uh, which is escaping me at the moment. But uh, in some ways, I'm surprised Mr. Johnson took it because he knows this is is a tough one. But he, uh, I I have a lot of regard for the man. Um, So I think that's a good call, whether he has a task that he won't be able to fulfill to meet anyone's satisfaction uh, is to be determined. 
Why would you? We asked this question the day uh, a couple of days ago. Why would you take this gig? What's in it for you? Uh, especially if at the end of the day nobody's happy and it's like you know it's just a whitewash. I mean, this might sound hokey, uh, but for Johnson. Um, and I got to spend some time with him uh, when he was governor general at the Olympics when I was the head of Rugby Canada and got to know him a little bit. And uh, I did discover somebody who's very genuine and has a f- strong belief in public service. So for him, he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the brand appeal. If anything, it's a risk mm-hmm. to his brand. So I have to believe it's probably public service and a belief that somebody has to step up and do it. He is of that, that mindset. Um, again, I hope for him it goes well because I do think he's a fundamentally uh, excellent human being. Um, that being said, uh, he will decide whether a further public inquiry is needed. So sort of a committee to decide whether we need another committee or not. Um, how do Canadians go into the next election without this information? Because it looks like this could take quite a while. Yeah, well, I, I mean, even if Canadians go into the informa- election, uh, uh, in, into the next election with whatever Mr. Johnson unearths, I mean, there's still going to be interference from other countries. I think we'd be naive to, to think that isn't the case. So, uh, I, I think it's less the conclusions and what will be done to, you know, share some information with the public that can make them more aware of what they need to look out for and what political parties and the actual sitting government does to continue to fortify our electoral processes. Uh, that being said, I mean, you, you know, I, I don't think anybody thinks that this changed the outcome of the election. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and we all know there's interference from one direction or another. And this is what I'm fearful of, of this, is that we'll get more conversation like this as opposed yeah. to who the heck knew this was going on and who benefited from this. I mean, at the end of the day, these are the tough questions we need answered. Yeah, and from the yeah, agreed. Uh, I think again, leaders got to be responsible here around that too. I think Polyev was kind of skirting with a little bit of trouble yesterday, alleging you know a little bit of conspiracy on Trudeau's part. He's got lots of ammo to go after Trudeau on. I think he's got to be careful with that. As I said somewhere else today, it kind of reminded me when the Liberals did. Uh, when uh, Martin was the prime minister and they ran these soldiers in the streets with gun ads that kind of backfired a little bit on them. So leaders need to be responsible here. Uh, but I, I don't know, in this day and age of um, selling doubt and, legitim- and, and doubt as a form of delegitimizing people, I don't think that's going to disappear quickly. With all due respect, Tim, this is all brought on by the Prime Minister himself. So he could clear this and open the windows and show everybody what's going on, and it would all die. I mean, at the end of the day, what is the reason for not holding a public inquiry when over 70% of the Canadian population want one? You've got something to hide. I mean, what else conclusion can you come from, Tim? You can you, it's certainly easy to say that. I agree with you. And so Polyev has a layup there. But my bigger point is they all have to be smart about this. And why does anyone have a public inquiry? Uh, I don't know, because there probably could be something there that's embarrassing. But, you know, I, I think a public inquiry and David Johnson uh, is wise enough if he thinks one needs to be called, will recommend it, I suspect. But, yeah, look, Trudeau has not helped himself at all in any of this, Scott. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm so bedazzled about 
you know, what the right approach of should be here amongst all the spin as everybody else probably is. Um, so yeah, a, a Trudeau's made a bigger mess out of this than, than he, uh, he perhaps intended to do. And he's generally wearing it. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Suma Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. We now know who the rapporteur is. It is former Governor General David Johnson. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Transportation Minister Omar Algabra said uh, yesterday the federal government will close a loophole that allows airlines to deny customers compensation for canceled flights. It seems we've already done this and now we're doing it again. Uh, I- I'm not sure if we're solving the problem here or just going in front of cameras and making announcements and throwing more money at things. And I'll be very honest. I don't have a lot of confidence in the transportation minister. Uh, to do anything more than than that, and that is just talk. Uh, does this make a difference? What is new here? Let's bring in Gabor Lucas, President Air Passenger Rights and Advocacy Group, and with us nor uh, with us now. Gabor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. I'm quite well. Thank you. Gabor, we've certain so far so good. We've certainly heard this song and dance a lot over the last uh, little while and the chaos that we've seen at airports and, and such. Uh, is there anything new here? Will this work? Uh, what are your thoughts on all this, Gabor? When I was uh, hearing the announcement, the idiom that came to my mind is throwing pearls to swine. Hmm. Uh, a more polite version is perhaps throwing bad, good money after the bad. Yeah. Uh, there is no doubt that eventually dealing with the backlog may require substantial additional resources. I would not disagree with that proposition. However, presenting this as the solution as just increasing staffing and, and more people working on a system that has inherent design flaws that make enforcement very, very difficult. Uh, is irresponsible and, and, uh, it is really, a, a more like a smoke screen than a real solution. So what needs to making promises to revamp, uh, some aspects. However, if you listen carefully to what he was saying, he said, yes, we are going to close the loophole, but still a plane should not be flying when it is not safe. So it sounds like he still wants to keep part of that safety reasons loophole on the law books. And uh, I fear that if that's the case, then nothing is going to improve. If I want to give you an analogy of what we are, what is happening, if the system is a bit like a sinking ship, and now what the minister is saying, let's get all the sailors to the pumps instead of actually first sealing the breach. Uh, so what needs to be done in your mind, Gabor? In my view, uh, as we had told a number of times to the House of Commons Transport Committee, uh, the government should introduce legislation to uh, harmonize Canada's air passenger protection regime with the European Union's gold standard. That works and is simple and straightforward, and it doesn't take 1,000 pages to decide the fate of $400 in the European regime. Hmm. The greatest problem is we can all argue until tomorrow whether the current regime is fair or not. Or One thing is just beyond dispute is that the European regime is far more simple. Because there you can decide whether compensation is owed to a passenger based on two or three bits of information that is already publicly available. While in Canada, it is extremely disproportionately complex and the vast amount of information needed to determine eligibility to compensation is within the carrier's exclusive control. So why, why would the transportation minister not look at this model then? 
that's a question that uh, many years ago, uh, David Common asked the Minister of Transport at the time, Mark Garneau, and he had no meaningful answer. Uh, the same question should be asked from Minister Algavra, and I'm not sure what he's going to respond. He's promising to introduce something later uh, this spring, perhaps in April. Um, but so far, we have heard lots of talk, very little action. Uh, obviously, if you're one of the 42,000 people standing in line waiting to hear your complaint uh, heard, you want to hear it heard. But again, as you use with the analogy of good money after bad, should we be spending money on the 42,000 complaints that are already on the books? Or should we be spending the money so we don't get another 42,000 complaints on the books? Obviously, we need to spend money on both. But in terms of the correct sequence of events, the first step that needs to be done is uh, have legislation in the works, and I'm talking about it before Parliament, to ensure that we don't get another 42,000 complaints in the system. Uh, every person who, who has a complaint now, their case should be heard and should be dealt with. And I agree that it may require some additional resources, but just throwing more money at a system and at a body which has shown time after time to be uh, biased and not to be independent from the government is in any way a workable solution. Did we not do this last year? I mean, we remember what happened when things finally opened up and, and Pearson was in chaos and such. And then, you know, the next holiday was coming. Oh, it's going to be fixed. And the next holiday is coming. It's going to be fixed. I mean, didn't we, did we not deal with this last year? Well, we have seen this last year. And unfortunately, the minister was quite slow to act. That's part and parcel of the problem. But, uh, you know, to put things into, into perspective, we have been cautioning the liberal government that what they proposed, this framework, would be doomed to fail already since 2017. We mm. cautioned them in 2018 before the Senate, and then in 2019 we published a 52-page uh, report setting out why we believe that this system is deficient. The government just chose not to listen. Many of the things that people are saying today, if you, if you spend the time uh, and go to our website and check this 52-page report from February 2019, you will find it there. It was predictable. We knew it would happen. We cautioned the government it would happen. They just decided to ignore it. So is this top up? And I understand it's like 76 million. Is that a waste of money? Is it, is it useful in any way? It, in the absence of some, uh, structural changes, it is likely a waste of money. Uh, if it was coupled with proper structural changes, uh, including uh, revamping the framework, entire legislation, then it could be useful, but not so in the current form. So really, this is just used to pay these people off to get them through the system. Well, unfortunately, the money doesn't go to the people to whom the compensation is owed. The money is, is going to to supposedly to a body which is supposed to enforce passenger rights. Right. But the problem is with the Canadian Transportation Agency's structure and its, its, its institutional culture that they have a cozy relationship with the airlines and they are not independent from the government. They are just independent in name, but not in actual action, as we have seen during the, the pandemic where they were uh, engaging in quite uh, questionable conduct when it comes to the uh, misleading statements they put out about vouchers versus refunds. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group. Uh, Transportation Minister has said yesterday the federal government will close loopholes and allow uh, airlines to deny customers compensation for canceled flights. Here we go again. Not sure it's going to do the work it's supposed to do. Gabor, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. 
All right. We remember during the height, uh, the beginning of the global pandemic, COVID-19, and the prime minister announced to us that we didn't make any vaccines here in Canada. Uh, and then everybody said, well, the government should be making vaccines. We should be protecting us here. Well, governments don't make vaccines. Private companies, big pharma make vaccines. And if you don't make it uh, profitable for them to come here by giving them incentives, then they don't come. They go to other countries and they're loyal to them. Canada has chosen to chase the generic drug companies offering cheaper copycat drugs. And actually, the people that do are indeed during the pandemic, it caught up to us. Now we're announcing that we've got drug plants coming back into Canada. Now we've got the story of a VW plant, battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. And everybody, did the government pay to have them do this? How did they get them to come? Well, of course they paid to make them come here. Of course they offered incentives, just like they were supposed to do with vaccines way back when and we're doing now. So I'm not sure why we're having this discussion other than how much. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well, thanks, Scott. Is there any debate whether they uh, gave them incentives? Of course they did, didn't they? Of course they did. <clears throat> That's why they're not re- revealing it. They said it's confidentiality. I have a slightly different um, theory. Uh, it's not that far away. They not only paid them, they paid them a humongous amount. That's an academic word for gigantic. Um, and they're so enormous, so humongous. That it's embarrassing, and they want to keep it confidential. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And um, and again, people can say, look, you know, don't get your knickers in a knot. We got a good deal. We got a battery plant. We want to redevelop industry on the towards the new economy. I get all of that. But you know, we just cannot. I've said this about hospitals. We're building a new hospital in Ottawa for five billion, which means it's going to come in at eight billion because they'll go over budget. We just don't have the resources to start building eight billion dollar hospitals willy nilly all across the country. We don't have the resources to drop a billion or more, and the rumor is it's north of a billion into every factory that opens in Canada. You know, it's really, we don't. And we do have comparative advantages, as you and I discussed. I'm not saying that the comparative advantage of a skilled labor force, we do. Very good universities, uh, especially around southern Ontario, we do. Uh, a transparent government, by and large, well, not always, but I mean, compared to the developing countries. Um, you know, we don't have the corruption that exists in those countries, rule of law, protection of private property, and so forth. But the point is, is that we cannot... We just don't have the money, the resources, especially with an aging population, to be throwing, name a number, a billion dollars a plant. We just cannot do it. And I think there's a better way. You know, the OECD worked, and Canada was one of the leaders. Canada was one of the leaders saying it is outrageous that companies are tax shopping from one country to the other and saying, give me a lower rate of tax and I'll come there. So we finally did a tax treaty and 138 countries, I believe, signed it and said, we're going to agree to a minimum corporate income tax across all these countries. So it cannot be used anymore. Well, it's time for Mr. Trudeau to start working with his colleagues in the other countries, the G7 and the OECD, the G20, to come up with a, a promise to develop a treaty that will uh, put a cap or limitation, I'm not saying abolition. I understand that they have to build interchanges off a major highway to go into a new plant. That's the government's responsibility anyways, I think. But the idea of giving them just a plain, plain flat out, let's call it what it is, a bribe, 
I don't mean it's going into anybody's private pockets. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting fraud or uh, malfeasance. I'm saying that we're bribing the company to come to Canada to build cars or build batteries. And, And we should get a treaty going where we say, no, 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 here's the... We restrict what you can and can't do. We've done it with NAFTA. We've done it with the WTO. We've done it with corporate impacts. And now is the time to put similar, create a similar treaty that constrains the amount of corporate welfare. Uh, would there be support with other countries for that? Is this the better way? Well, the, and I'm, I'm sure some, many would say, wait a minute, nobody's going to agree with that. Well, 20 yeah. years ago, everyone said there's no way. The companies, countries, excuse me, countries are going to agree to tie their hands behind their back and limit themselves uh, uh, from using reduced corporate income tax to uh, attract companies. Well, it took 20 years. Yeah, it took a long time. Wish it didn't take so long, but we finally did it. And so, you know, if if this is the harbinger, you know, canary in the gold mine of plants to come, well, we're going to be running up an awful lot of multi, multi billion dollar deficits to fund buying companies to come to Canada. And I don't, here's my final, my sort of bottom line on this. I have said over and over, I do not believe, Scott, I do not believe that we, if we get into a dogfight with the United States of America on corporate incentives, hmm. we will lose. Why? Yeah, they're because bigger. they're 10 times bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody understands that. They're 10 yeah. times bigger. They will win. We will lose because they got more resources and money to give these, this corporate welfare and set us out. So it's in our interest to have a treaty that will constrain and limit this kind of behavior. Um, how much is too much? Or, or is it the treaty is the only answer? That's the way I, forward. I, I, well, the way, I mean, I remember we were having this debate the way back when, uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when they were building the Senators um, uh, Hockey Arena right. in the West End of Ottawa. And, uh, and there, was, there was government money involved. And, and I said, look, we can't just say blanket across the board, it's bad. What we should do is say there's certain things that are okay and certain things that aren't. Building interchanges off the main interstate or the main highway, the 417, the 401, the 40 whatever, that to me is perfectly legitimate. Roads are the responsibility of government. Doing that sort of thing is fine. Waiving taxes, municipal taxes for 10 or 20 years is not, is not good. Um, saying we're going to build the building for you, your private building, and you're going to own it, but we're the public going to pay for it. I don't think that that's acceptable. So we should make a distinction between what is the public good in the treaty and the government is responsible for public goods, you know, and, and I mean by that interchanges off roads and that kind of thing. And uh, anything that's in the public domain, they're responsible for it. And then the private domain is the private sector. And I mean building the building or building the plant. And, and it seems to me that you can develop such a, a fairly clear understanding. And because I just, you know, we can't, we literally cannot go on dropping a billion at a plant. I think it's about a billion. We just can't drop a billion at every plant that we're going to pop up in Canada over the next five or 10 or 20 years. We're Isn't it? Isn't it safe to say, Ian, considering all the EV uh, announcements that have been made over the last year or so, including one in Oakville and in various other places yeah. around Ontario, these are all subsidized as well. Oh, uh, but 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 is that not keeping us in the auto industry? I'm playing devil's advocate well, here. I know, no, I know, I understand what you're doing, and I appreciate that because you're you know challenging me, and I got to you know respond. Uh, I think first off, we need an accounting, and I would like to see an accounting of let's say the last five years. Uh, 
maybe by the uh, PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, or the Auditor General of Canada, that will total up the total amount of federal and provincial. I'm not picking on the feds only, um, and uh, but at least the federal, because they're at the federal level, PBO and Auditor General, uh, that would come up with an accounting for everybody so we can at least have a conversation over, well, do we think it's worth it? And right now we don't have that conversation. Uh, that being said, um, we subsidize lots of industries uh, across the board. Some may say, well, we're subsidizing the gas industry, the energy industry. So isn't it better to be doing this than that? Um, I've heard this argument many, many times. I've looked into it because uh, environmental groups make this argument. And they call uh, – we have to be very careful with our language and not be demagogic or dishonest. They call a subsidy uh, if you uh, – if a company deduct any of your expenses off of your uh, revenues, uh, wages, uh, plant and equipment, they call that a subsidy. That is not a subsidy. That's a cost of doing business. And in every country I've ever looked at, at least Western countries, any company can deduct their cost of doing business, wages and, 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 uh, and benefits and, and so forth. That is not a subsidy. They're just either deeply confused or they're demagoguing. But whereas when you give a grant to a company to do something that is going to be owned by the company and they're going to receive the revenues from that investment, that I think we can understand is a subsidy. And so we have to define our terms and then, you know, and say, look, we're not talking about deducting your operating costs of doing business or your cost of goods sold. There are people who argue that when the pipeline company buys pipe, steel pipe from Hamilton, that's a subsidy. No, it's not. You got to buy the pipe to be a pipeline company. Just like you got to buy bits and pieces to build a car. It's cost of goods sold. That's a legitimate expense. That's not a subsidy. So, but this, so you know, I think we're going to have to have this argument because it's not – I'm, I'm opposed to corporate subsidies, by the way. I really am because it's not the most efficient way to run the country. And there's lots of other needs that are more pressing, like health care, for example. And so that's why we have to have this conversation. First, let's have an accounting. How much are we doing annually in terms of corporate welfare, corporate subsidies? And then secondly, say, well, people, is this, are we getting bang for buck? Is this worth it? Or would you rather have the money put here than in, let's say, healthcare? Because there's always trade-offs with public policy. You can't do everything. So if you're doing, putting money into one area called building a factory for a company, then that money is not being spent somewhere else in the country because governments, even governments, face finite resources. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, on the VW deal to get a battery plant in St. Thomas. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, the special rapporteur has been announced, and it's David Johnson, former governor general. Pretty solid guy from uh, what we remember and what we hear. Uh, so the committee to figure out uh, if another committee's uh, needed to call an inquiry is uh, in progress. I thought Avril Levine would have made a great rapporteur, the way she took care of that stripper on stage at uh, the Junos. I still want a raconteur, a special raconteur. I think that would be way more entertaining, quite honestly. But and I was sing to the world and to Canada. <laughs> I thought Ratatouille. I, th- I thought because I thought it yes. I thought it sounded more like a Disney character, that, that, a, an animated character, or something like that. You look, know, the, I, I, I the mouse chef. This. I will say this: that um, I, I mean, I am shockingly impressed 
with the choice of David Johnson, quite honestly. I yeah. I really expected, and this is based on past precedent, this is even based on uh, Rolou before, Rouleau, however you say his name, um, that there would be some sort of liberal connection in here that would create enough fog and mist and and and, and people yeah. not ex- not believing it. So this I look I, I applaud the choice on this one. I think this is one where you look and you will say at the end, regardless of what the outcome is, I don't see and I don't think most people see a liberal partisan or a, at least a government partisan taking this position. So that's good. Uh, you know, again, it just, when, when these start, they get really cloudy. And at the end of the day, what we really want known is, uh, how did they interfere? And when did we know that they interfered? Did the prime minister know? Do you think we're going to get to the bottom of those questions or just that, you know, there's interference and we should do something about it? Like, I mean, that's obvious. Okay. So what I just said about the choice, I'm great with the choice. Now, the next part is what can the choice do? And what are going to be the guidelines and the limitations and who is allowed to speak to him? I mean, we've seen a filibuster for how many hours now to try and prevent Katie Telfer. And, you know, I got to say this. I was talking to someone today who said to me, if they don't, if she and the liberals don't have something to hide, why are they trying so darn hard? Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if she has anything to hide. But, boy, you sure send a message that there is something, whether it's true or not, by doing this. So will she, will the prime minister, will others, will CSIS members, who will be allowed to speak to this? How public will it be? Because some of these documents are classified. What sort of report is he going to be able to issue because there's classified documents? And last time, don't forget when when Justice Rouleau gave his um answer, his his report, the mm-hmm. government had, what was it, two weeks or 10 days before it was, became public yeah. to go over it. Yeah. Like yeah. there's all these different things. So good start, good start, like the choice, good choice, best I can tell. But where do you go from here? And are you now going to take what seems like a good move and throw obstacles, or are you going to flatten the path so that we can actually get somewhere on this? I think the difference between this and the convoy inquiry, not that this is an inquiry, but the, is that, you know, a lot of people didn't support it in, in the hooliganism that went on for the three weeks and such, no matter who you want to blame for that, whether it's the police chief or the prime minister or whoever. In this situation, uh, Leger is saying 72% of Canadians want a public inquirer. How far do you think that goes? How much weight does that hold? Uh, again, I would suggest the answer may lie in what would be found. We don't know what would be found, but some people do. And so, you know, if there is a, if there is something there, if there's a there there, they may not want a public inquiry. If there's not much there, well, sure, let's go ahead and we'll be transparent like we said we were going to be in 2015. Remember, we are going to be the most transparent government ever. That was mm. one of the promises. And yep. this latest filibuster is putting a bit, putting that to a bit of a lie, but we'll see. And we're not talking about one election here. We're talking about two elections here, both that seem to favor the Liberals. So, again, those are the questions I think people want answered, not whether we should be doing more or a report that sits on somebody's shelf for the next, uh, you know, 10 years. All right, uh, we're out of time. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Diane wrote to say on the subject of the great boneless chicken wing conspiracy, chickens don't have fingers either, but millions are sold daily. Let's start another class action. Yeah. Yeah.